0: Welcome to Significant Bits. I'm your host, Josh Bleeker-Snyder, and this is my guest, Ben Johnson, a staff engineer at Fly.io and creator of Lightstream.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: Before we dive into Lightstream, we typically have an icebreaker, which is asking you to tell about an embarrassing bug that you wrote. The goal is to humble yourselves here before you terrify all the listeners. So. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I've done, I mean, it's a tough choice, like to figure out which one you're going to pick out, really. I would say the most embarrassing one by far was a public one, and it was actually an open source project. So I wrote BoltDB as well. It's just to give you some context, as a key value store in Go. Uh, and it got fairly popular, it was pretty early on, and it was a port of another key value store in C called LMDB. So I ported it over maybe like 2013. We used it at Shopify for a while, and I kind of picked up in other Go places, and it got picked up by Console, which is run by HashiCorp. So they use it for some of their the ref logs and just all kinds of little stuff.
0: I've used it myself. If you need a simple key value store, it's great.
1: Yeah, super, super straightforward, hopefully. That's, that's the idea. Yeah, end of last year, there was a um, an outage at Roblox. Or Roblox, I don't know if you're familiar with the game company. But they had like a 73-hour a outage. And then they eventually published something on it. And like the root cause is Bolt DB. <laughs> So, and I felt so bad about that. I even like, yeah, made like a public apology <laughs> to the folks that had to like do all the, uh, you know, the op stuff and figure out what, what was going on. The way that BoltDB works, it's a B plus tree. Whenever you like use a page and then you don't use the page anymore, like you get rid of it, it goes in what's called a free list and the free list and some databases, they, they scale it well and BoltDB, I didn't, <laughs> BoltDB is not good if you like add a bunch of data and delete a bunch of data and do that over and over and over again it just gets slow or, or like that operation will be slow that kind of had a compounding effect on some higher level stuff and then it just like it took down everything apparently so and it was like a design design decision from like a decade ago that didn't like propagate until then so it was a, uh, yeah so i would say that's by far my most embarrassing bug
0: Well, this is also how distributed systems fail, right? You get these five nines by having colossal outages when you have cascading failures. So was it a a fragmentation problem? What was the design of the free list that led to the problem? (laughs) It's
1: not good. It's really just like an array of the page numbers and it was stored in contiguous blocks. So like if you had like a ton of contiguous blocks, of data, I mean, like they're four byte integers. So like you need a lot of them to really notice. But like when you do have gigabytes of data and you're like adding and deleting and whatnot, then... It really starts to show up in your graphs. There's a port of BoltDB called bbolt, and that one actually fixes the issue. So it actually was an existing, like, fix for it, but they were on the, the old version. So, you know, one of those things. Update your dependencies.
0: And of course, the fact of the world is the more code you write and the more important code you write that gets used by people, the more likely you are that you're going to be the one that has the giant security hole.
1: Yep. The older I get, the, like the more scared I am of writing code. I know there's a bug coming from this.
0: Never will I ever, I hope, write code that has attached to atoms. I tried once. I had a little, um, little robotics fling, and I was down in a garage messing with things and frantically trying to finish up this demo that I wanted to get done by 5 p.m. And so I was cutting every corner, and you know, it's just like a fifty or sixty pound blob on wheels. And I called down my wife and our six-month-old to show her what I had built. And I hit go. And (laughs) I was using, it's like a little Raspberry Pi with like a phone attached to it, like communicating over UDP, over the cloud. Like it was a disaster zone. And there was a bug around sending sort of edge triggered versus level triggered um, and I made the wrong decision and uh, the thing started spinning uncontrollably and then flicked my phone off of it so now I had no control over it and I've got this like 60 pound thing on wheels spinning and I like turn to my wife and I'm like take my child and run because I don't actually <laughs> know what's going <laughs> to do next and it was like one of those scenes from a movie you know where they have to like pull a wire out of the bomb is it the red wire or the blue wire and I'm like staring at it with a little schematics diagram in my head and I'm like trying to figure out which wire I can pull out that will cause the thing to stop moving and I'm like diving in and yanking the wire, diving in. And at the end of that, I was like, okay, that was fun. I'm, I'm done with things that move.
1: Yeah, I've never ventured into robotics. It always sounds fascinating, but I could see it being terrifying too.
0: The fun thing about robotics is as a software engineer, it's extremely humbling because you are faced with this problem and you think, okay, I'm going to solve this problem. And you think really hard about it. You think about control systems and you think about feedback loops. And then a mechanical engineer comes along and they're like, how about you put a bit of rubber right there? And like it solves the entire problem. <laughs> Most of the like intuitively hard problems, in fact, are solvable through mechanical and electrical engineering, which is actually, this is a fabulous segue to talk about Lightstream. <laughs> the connection here is thinking about solving things at the right layer, at the right level, and finding interesting injection points. And Lightstream, I believe, has an interesting injection point. But before we go there, first of all, give us the elevator pitch. What is Lightstream? Who would use it? Why do we care?
1: Sure, yeah. So Lightstream, the idea of it is, um, say you have a SQLite database, and you just love doing SQLite because it's simple, and like you want to use it on the server because it's fast and you can honestly scale up pretty well with a single node. But like if your server dies, all your data is gone. It's you know catastrophic data loss. That sucks. So what Lightstream does is it just continuously replicates changes to your database up to S3, so you don't need a second server to worry about or manage, um, and it's super cheap moderately sized database and just have constant writes, It costs like a couple dollars a month. Maybe it tops. The great thing about S3 is, and like other ones too. I know like Backblaze has a similar product and Cloudflare and all those. They're super cheap to upload to, but expensive to download from. So they're great backup tools. <laughs> so it's just dirt cheap to push up because you don't have bandwidth costs. Yeah. That's basically the idea. Like you want to run C- or SQLite on the server and you don't want to lose all your data is the, the elevator pitch.
0: And it's specifically backup. You aren't, say, replicating to other live servers. This isn't a synchronization thing. It is specifically backups.
1: Yeah, that's uh, Lightstream is specifically backups. There's another tool I wrote as well called LightFS that does the actual replication uh, if you need that. There are different levels of complexity and kind of what you need. I tried to build the replication into Lightstream. It was just not the right fit.
0: Awesome. Let's start with Lightstream, and maybe that'll give us the uh, the basis for talking about LightFS as well. Imagine I've decided that I really want to come and contribute to it, and I want the walkthrough. So the conceptual picture, how do the pieces fit together, um, and then like the interesting bits code wise that I'm gonna go and stare at and try to figure out.
1: <laughs> just to put a, a uh, caveat on, like we have a pretty strict contributor policy. Like we don't accept a ton of contributions. Just more of like a mental load piece. Um, I also kind of believe in making software that's complete more or less. I mean, like, I don't like to grow software without end and that's kind of where like bolt ended up as I just said, Hey, it's done now. Like we're not adding anymore. And, uh, that was it. But as far as like to get your, to your root question, like what is the conceptual layers of it? So essentially it runs, you know, as a, a separate tool, like a separate process from SQLite. Uh, I tried for a long time to figure out different ways to kind of inject in some kind of replication into SQLite. So my background is all data storage and databases for maybe the last decade. This kind of came from like with BoltDB. I was really trying to figure out how to use it from like an application development perspective because it's just so fast and so easy. You have no dependencies. It's great. But you also don't have like a schema (laughs) or like indexes and things like that. You got to build all that yourself. And it was a pain. So don't do that. You know, SQLite is like an embedded database that provides all those great things. You know, I tried different ways of injecting. You can kind of load in modules. You can do all kinds of stuff. But I really wanted to make it, I want to make it like an ops concern and not a developer concern. So I want people to develop their app like they're just using plain old SQLite. And then once they push up to the server, they can tack on Lightstream without having to like change their application at all, which is great for legacy code as well. Like if you have... I think WordPress supports SQLite now, so you could like push up a WordPress site and have that automatically replicate. It doesn't need to know about Lightstream itself, which is great.
0: That's excellent. There's been a bunch of interest in the Go community recently about these ports, like modernc.org has a complete port of SQLite to Go, so you don't need to use Seago. Um, and then there's some other layers being built on top of it. And one of the selling points is that it is Byte for byte compatible and it even works with Lightstream. and so the instinct to take it outside of the database means that it works with crazier invocations of uh, sqlite
1: yeah and i've been i haven't used the modern c1 in production before i've used it personally but i like the idea of it i always get very cautious about database stuff which which is kind of weird too because i make database tools which i would probably be cautious about if i was somebody else but
0: well that's always how it is the people who know the most about something are the most terrified of using it the thing that was most fascinating for me when i started using the modern C SQLite was that all of a sudden the performance was all in a single box. My PPROF profiles weren't just my code and Uh, then this like black hole when it came to the database. I could actually see how expensive things were and where I really needed an index. It showed up along with everything else and putting things in the same profiling output was really revolutionary for me.
1: No, I can imagine. Yeah, that'd be great. The CGO stuff, I always hate that when I'm trying to profile and it's just, it goes into nowhere. So
0: It's interesting because I also realized how expensive all the database work is. People have this experience sometimes when they get an electric vehicle and all of a sudden their car has the same units as their house and they're like, oh my God, like (laughs) my my car consumes more energy than my entire house. I had no idea because the units were gasoline. I never even
1: thought about that. Yeah. Anyway, back to databases. Yeah. So like the way that Lightstream works, it's a bit of a fluke. It works like it's like legit, but I kind of came across it as a fluke. It's about how SQLite works. There's kind of an original, there's two different modes basically to SQLite. So when you write data, you're not like overriding the database itself. Like uh, when you make a transaction, cause it needs to roll back the database. So like the original mode was the, the rollback journal. It copies out the chunks of the database you're about to change into a rollback journal and it'll update the database. So if anything happens before you delete that rollback journal, when it starts back up, it'll copy it all back in to the database essentially. So that's the original mode. And then they added a new one, and I say new, and it was like 15 years ago, (laughs) maybe 20 maybe. The new mode is write ahead log, which is the wall, W-A-L. And that's essentially the opposite, where instead of changing the database, you're appending new pages on, like changed pages, onto another file called the wall. You have a bunch of different versions of of each page as you're changing it. So if a transaction comes in at one point, and then you change the wall, it can still have that same version and view that same state because it has a version of the page that's been changed in its own system.
0: And then I presume occasionally the wall gets incorporated in and it gets, everything gets compacted. I'm speaking in metaphors, but at some point you don't want to accumulate uh, sort of stuff forever and have to work through versions in order to figure out what's happening.
1: Yep. Exactly, and that's kind of how Lightstream works. Or like That's one of the, the ways that Lightstream kind of hooks in, is that SQLite has this oddity where it doesn't allow, so it's called checkpointing, when you move stuff from the wall, like move the whole wall back into the database, and it can't do that as long as there's an active transaction on the database. So Lightstream essentially just keeps a, an open read-only transaction on the database indefinitely until it's ready to actually, you know, Pull everything out make sure everything's replicated out to a kind of a staging area outside of SQLite, uh, and then it can release that and let it all compact back in, and then it'll pick back up a new, um, yeah, read uh, retransaction again once it's compacted all back all back down. So
0: oh yeah, it's tricky. You sort of have a Byzantine general problem, right? Because you need to keep everything in the wall until you're confident that you've got it, um, and then you need to release it. Um, but when are you confident that you've done the replication? Um, at some point. I guess then you have to deal with the possibility of re-uploading chunks of the wall multiple times.
1: So Lightstream will actually pull off chunks of the wall into kind of a staging area um, that's separate from your database. So it won't block uh, when it's doing replication. It'll let you, you know, SQLite go back and compact the whole thing and then restart. And in the background, even if you're disconnected from from the internet or disconnected from S3, it'll kind of keep some compressed versions of those wall files in place. Um, And it's not even the whole wall file Upload. So every second, it'll go in and check the, like, do a real quick check to see if there's any changes. If there are, then it'll pull off any new ones, move to the staging area, and then those get uploaded later.
0: Okay, so the flow of data runs from the wall to a staging area where, in theory, you could have catastrophic loss, but you're typically connected to the internet enough that the staging area typically doesn't back up uh, too badly.
1: Yeah. If you had really long outages and you have a ton of rights, it could grow, but the nice thing about B trees is that they tend to be very compressible. <laughs> uh, there tends to be a lot of text data, just from databases and on top of that. B trees also have, sorry, B tree is what SQLite's built on. They also tend to have a lot of empty space just so they can add new rows and split, and when they split, they add more space. So you get like a great compression rate, usually around like 16 to 20% of the original size. So they, they go down real small.
0: Awesome. Quick in the weeds for a second. What do you use for doing the compression? Are you a Z-stud or um, LZ or something, hand-rolled?
1: LZ4 for the compression. I did some tests on a couple different versions. There was a reason I picked LZ4 out of all of them. (laughs) But ultimately, I mean, it, it works pretty well. And they're more temporary than anything. And you're not really trying to save a ton of space. As much as people like to talk about big data and whatnot, like at certain size companies, sure, 100%. But like most people have maybe a gigabyte database most of the time and like Lightstream will run on that just fine no problem and it'll compact it down send it up.
0: Most data is small and that's why we use single servers and why we write simple programs with embedded databases because handling large data is complicated. Okay tell me more about the um, the transaction that you keep open with SQLite. how do you do that running for a separate process?
1: Oh so SQLite's great and for like process essentially has like a series of bytes on a, a shared file that you can take file locks on. Um, that's how it does it internally. But we essentially take one of those locks on there through just like a basic query, like a read-only query. And then we just never commit or roll back. And that works great. and <laughs> um, actually uses the SQLite API to do all that stuff. So it doesn't actually try to like figure this stuff out internally. We do more of that in like LightFS around locks and stuff like that. At some point, I might actually try pulling out SQLite from the actual uh, Lightstream as a dependency. it can just be Sego. Or sorry, n- no Segoe. Someday, who knows?
0: <laughs> but in the meantime, you're using all the official blessed SQLite things. And so it should be very vanilla from the perspective of SQLite.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: We've tracked the bytes from the write-ahead log to the staging area. And then Lightstream is responsible for schlepping those up to S3. And since S3 doesn't have any processing, it's also doing in S3 any processing that needs to happen there, right? What does the, the S3 storage look like?
1: Yeah, so there's a concept of generations inside of Lightstream and a generation is just really a randomly generated identifier. So generation is essentially like a snapshot and then a contiguous set of wall files. We kind of keep track of how they roll over and exactly where the checksums are and all that stuff all along the way. But you can have situations where like maybe Lightstream stops, the process stops, and you don't restart it for a little bit, and it kind of skips, you know, a step in there where it doesn't have that tracking anymore. We want to restart the generation so we basically re-upload a snapshot and track from there. We do a lot of checks in there just to verify consistency between each wall file, just to make sure we're not skipping any anything in there. Because that sucks. (laughs) Right.
0: You you don't want your backup system to miss stuff. Does it (laughs) does it then go to S3, check on the state, compare it to its local state, and figure out what it needs to do?
1: Uh yeah, so we'll check some stuff around like the last version that was sent up and we'll check its local staging area and see how they compare and make sure that they're at the same spot or where it you know, left off uh, and will continue to upload after that. Uh, but it also does other stuff too, is around, around like retention. So like by default, it'll send up a new snapshot every day. You can obviously adjust that and then it'll continuously send up the updates. Part of that is also just like the restore time because like the number of wall files you have to replay afterward, adds a lot of time. If, it, you, know, if you got like a snapshot like a month ago and then yeah, replay every write, that sucks.
0: Yeah, and so then there's a tool I presume to pull down the snapshot and all of the pending writes and reconstitute it into a SQLite database.
1: Yep, It's right in the uh, the SQL or the Lightstream binary as well. So Lightstream restore. Uh, you can even do timestamps as well. So if you want to say, hey, like I maybe didn't like lose all your data. Maybe you just deleted a table or something. <laughs> so you can go back in time and say, I want to pull it from this this point in time. That's always always pretty handy.
0: And does the restore use vanilla SQLite somehow, or is that poking under the hood at the guts?
1: The restore, um, it it's mostly vanilla SQLite. Actually, the restore process isn't that hard. I might rewrite that just because it would be faster not to use SQLite. But essentially, we reconstitute the snapshot, and then we reconstitute each wall file that occurs after that. And after each wall file, we open up a connection to SQLite, and it does the recovery of it. And then we checkpoint it and then we redo it every time. But really there's just some consistency checks in the wall that we could do. And then just do the copies of the actual pages. Someday. <laughs> it's always someday.
0: Is there anything operationally that's worth knowing? Is it to expose interesting Grafana metrics and the size of the pending stuff?
1: Or yeah, we do Prometheus metrics uh, that you can pull off of. Uh, that'll give you, I think, like wall size and whatnot of all your your database or, you know, different storage sizes. We had an issue early on where, like, people wanted to spin up their application and Lightstream, but a lot of stuff, like, was very Docker-based at the time. It's kind of like a one binary thing. So, like, you start looking at things, and there's, like, S6 or something. There's this, like, thing where you could, like, have a bunch of different processes, and it was a little complicated. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I don't want to load all these different things. So, like... Um, one thing you can do with Lightstream is that it can actually just be the supervisor for your application process, which inser- ensures that Lightstream starts up before everything else does, and that if your application dies, then Lightstream will kill it, or vice versa, if Lightstream dies and your app dies. If you want to avoid like losing you know rights to the database. We don't do anything crazy complicated in there, but it generally seems to work pretty well.
0: Makes sense. What what went wrong while you were getting this up and running initially?
1: Because you're doing like a lot of file-based stuff. There's a lot of weird timing issues you can get into especially when you're doing like file locks and oh like if you ever get into like POSIX locks or POSIX I don't know how you say it but like (laughs) it's crazy that like if you take a lock on a file descriptor and then you take a a lock on a different file descriptor for the same file or even for the same iNode it could even be through you know name something different Uh, and then you close one of those file descriptors you lose the lock for both (laughs) and you're like what (laughs) how is that a thing that's crazy so like there's there is a fix on like linux for that where they have um ofd locks or whatever open file descriptor locks you can use but that doesn't exist on other systems so anyway like all that's hidden by sqlite thankfully like they do their own layer of locking and they have like a huge comment in there about how much they hate locking (laughs) so if you ever find that in the code it's pretty entertaining
0: amazing yeah SQLite, just this this marvel of technology and i think it is the marvel it is because it's been around 15 20 years and has just handled all of this mess
1: yeah and they use it on like every single device you can think of it's crazy like early on we definitely did a lot of load testing on it just finding different ways to shove data in there and like do commits and all kinds of stuff and see where we can get it to break i will say like checksums are like I love them, and they're like the bane of my existence. <laughs> and that, like, if you're trying to get like byte for byte exact things to match, if a checksum breaks, at least you know something broke. Like, that's great. That's the best part about them. But they also don't give you any information as to why. <laughs> it's just I have this random series of bytes, and these other random series of bytes, and I don't know the difference. So
0: exactly, you're trying to get into a bar, and uh, you're like, "Is the passcode bacon?" And they're like, "Nope." You're like, uh, "Nope." <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: pretty much. Yeah, but they're they're great for like consistency stuff. So we do a lot of those in, in Lightstream.
0: While you were talking, I was worrying about the case where your writes are very heavily loaded, maybe with lots of open transactions in SQLite, and you never get an opportunity to compress the write-ahead log. And it sounds like the staging area serves the purpose of ensuring that you are never a bottleneck in terms of the database continuing to operate. Is that
1: correct? Yeah, I would say that's generally correct. I mean, with Lightstream, you can get into issues where you, it won't have the opportunity to actually checkpoint that stuff back in if you're doing so many writes and so many transactions. But Lightstream actually does, after a certain period of time or like certain size, that'll actually force a, a checkpoint in there itself. So it does some control for that automatically, which is nice. Once you get into like the database stuff, it's kind of wild. Honestly, like people always, they talk about like, like Postgres and MySQL, people talk about the operational complexity, which I think there is definitely operational complexity and those for sure, they're servers and whatnot. But the other interesting part is like, their default isolation level, if you wanna get into like database isolation levels, is really weak, like it's crazy how weak it is. I think MySQL is not too bad, they do, I think, repeatable read, but then if you get into like Postgres, it's committed read, which is like, you don't even necessarily get a snapshot of the data, I don't think, by default. It can be wild, like you can get queries that go in and if you do another query of the same data, after that query you can get different results. I think they're great for, like, if you have high concurrency, um, especially with writes, you can do a lot of interleaving. There's a lot of fancy stuff you can do, and they have, you know, row-level and table-level locks. But, like, if you're new to databases and, like, you don't understand all those tiny intricacies, not even new to databases, honestly, like, you could be doing this for a while. Me. (laughs) Like, yeah, if you don't understand the intricacies of isolation levels, and there's a lot, like, SQLite does serializable isolation, which is, like, the highest level of isolation, so, essentially, you can only have one writer at a time. So, like the state uh, at any given time is a full snapshot of the database. I, don't know. I, I always think, like, I think that is an interesting part of SQLite that's not talked about a lot, is just the simplicity of like the just how you think about your data.
0: I mean, it's easier to program against in a lot of ways. You don't have to worry about whether you're doing n queries or one query. So, you can write simpler queries, you can interleave your logic in your queries. Does the fact that it is by default serializable, isolatable, is that a consequence of SQLite wanting to help people do the right thing and be safe by default?
1: I don't I don't know how they, if they are trying to help their users. I assume they are, but I don't know if that was the decision. I think it's an easier, I think it's a lot easier to actually implement um, serializable than it is to do some of the more complicated isolation levels. And honestly, the isolation levels, my understanding is they came out in the 80s or whatever, and they were really trying to optimize a lot of stuff. So if you can do like a row level lock here and you get a lot of, you know, better performance from some benchmark, then... So be it, but like, I think there's a lot of real world consequences to that. As far as like the implementation, like having a single snapshot that you can view at any given time uh, is way easier than trying to keep a bunch of different snapshots at a row level. That's my guess, at least.
0: So if I follow correctly, it would be much harder to write a tool like Lightstream for Postgres, precisely because it's hard to find places where you have complete, coherent, consistent snapshots of the database. I assume you've thought about doing this for Postgres.
1: Yeah, actually, there is another one for Postgres um, called... There's, there's the original one called wal e W-A-L-Dash-E. And then there's another one after that, I think, called W-A-L-Dash-G, WAL-G. Wall-G. What about F? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was done by uh, like the Postgres folks at Heroku, I think, uh, way back in the day. I haven't used that one too much. I mean, I think people do use it. Um, but the interesting part is like once you get down like to the level of Lightstream, So we're actually like copying out pages and like, um, just to explain, I guess, how databases work to some degree. So you generally have like two types of storage layers or two types of storage. It's either like a B plus tree or an LSM, which stands for a log structured merge tree. Um, and it's just kind of how you write the data out. The B plus tree is a lot simpler to explain. So I'll just stick with that one. It's pretty commonly used. Uh, you can look up LSM trees. They're really like write heavy, write optimized.
0: They're really neat. I want to do a whole thing about them. Actually, a subsequent episode I have planned with I guess, who's going to talk about log-structured merge trees. So they're awesome. We'll come back to them. But let's do B-trees now.
1: Um, yeah, LSM's great. I won't I won't spoil that for you. B-plus <laughs> um, trees, essentially it's just, it's a tree. And you store, obviously there's a root. And then you, I don't have anything to draw on. But, you know, tree's down. And then all your data is actually in the leaf nodes at the very bottom of the tree. And then everything else above it is just kind of pointers to... Uh, your data within there. And it's all sorted. And it's, it's made so you can quickly find an individual record or to, to query across uh, a span of records um, really quickly. LSMs are all right at look like single lookups, but they're pretty bad at like range lookups. Uh, that's why you don't see them as much in certain kinds of databases. Uh, so the B plus trees, like when I'm actually pulling stuff out, so each of those pages in there are all the same size. So they're 4k blocks. Whenever you change any data in your database in a sqlite database you don't just write a couple bytes you always change at least 4k at a time i think that's it's a weird thing you don't think about until you actually get down in there but like there's no like small change to a row it's always much larger than you think but it go, it's how computers are optimized they're meant to go in blocks and certain sizes
0: flip a bit and an entire page gets written out
1: yeah exactly yeah
0: the leaves of these bee trees are not themselves pages or are they
1: so yeah yeah so the leaves and the branches are all pages so like when you actually lay out like a file is you know it starts at the beginning and then moves you know out however many bytes every 4k in that sqlite file is a, is a different page so like they're physically organized in one long row but logically there actually is a tree where there's a root and it goes to branches and leaves at the bottom so usually, I would say generally, the rule of thumb is that like branch pages tend to be about 10% of the database. So it's mostly leaf pages.
0: Do they end up being a large percentage of the writes?
1: Yeah, I would say generally, it's it's mostly leaf pages that are changed. And although one exception is you can have certain kinds of databases like LMDB or BoltDB, they actually do uh, like a full copy on write. So when you change a leaf, it actually changes all the parents as well on every right (laughs) so that's a whole different that's a whole different world but
0: why hold on wait wait we can't just gloss over that why
1: okay essentially like you have a root node and whenever whatever that root node points to that's the full snapshot of the database and then if you want to change a leaf in there uh, you have to make a new copy of that leaf but you can't just you can't change where the Parent is pointing to, you have to change that one as well, and the one above it, and the one all the way to the root. And then that new root will point to mostly all old pages and everything, but that new kind of lineage of that one leaf page will now be your your full snapshot of the database. <laughs> but you can then maintain the old ones as well. It gives you a point in time snapshot, which is the idea.
0: Maybe stretching, but feels a bit like how Git is implemented, right? Like you add a few new objects in there and uh, it gets to reuse most of the other objects. With Git, it's content addressable. Here, it's more direct pointers, um, but you get that same simple copy-on-write, complete snapshots.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say it's pretty, pretty similar. And a lot of like the the tree-based stuff is always fascinating. Like how it all—I think trees are great. They're great in computer science. <laughs> Whenever there's a problem and you need to scale, it's like it's going to be a tree somehow
0: what else would I need to know? I have a good picture like how Lightstream works. Is there anything that's particularly interesting code-wise or is it mostly just slinging around a bunch of SQLite API calls in the right order? Is there any, any subtleties? I don't
1: think about Kubernetes that much, but like Kubernetes, one thing it does <laughs> is like it has that retry loop. You know, I don't know why that's the first one that popped in my head. A lot of software does this. It'll check the state and then it'll keep working towards something. And then if it fails, it can just It'll retry again the next time. It just keeps retrying. And then, yeah, just make sure you can recover from all those pieces. You know, make sure that whenever you're making changes, especially like doing if you're doing writes to something, you know, write off to a temporary file, and then you can atomically rename it back to where you want it to go, doing consistency checks throughout. I mean, I think that's got a long way to making sure that the stuff you're writing out is what you mean to write out. Write out. So, yeah, outside of that, I don't think there's anything crazy going on in there. There's some optimizations on, like, the, the restore side as far as, like, doing Go routines to pull down multiple files at the same time while we're doing uh, the checkpointing. But no, I wouldn't say there's anything super crazy. It's pretty well commented too, if anyone ever wants to dive in there and look at some code. I tend to be like, this probably drives a lot of people nuts. I'm like a to-do driven design. Or like, <laughs> like When I write code, I write the comments for my function, like inside the function first, and then I'll just go back and implement them. So I always have comments like a lot of comments in my code. Maybe it's too many. I mean, some people, it's a very touchy subject, I know.
0: I happen to like it. I think a lot of people have started to adopt that style with the advent of Copilot, because that's how you write the code. You describe what it should do, and then you fix the thing the Copilot did.
1: Yeah, and I like them as like really bad tests. That's how I think of them. They don't don't run on their own, but if you go back into code and you like read a comment and it says, oh, this should do this thing, and you read the code and you're like, that's not what it does. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's like a a check. I've had that. Because if you just have the code, then like you assume that the person that wrote the code wrote correctly the thing that they wanted to write, which is not true necessarily. So
0: you get sort of a commander's intent alongside the, uh, the pile of bytes.
1: Nice. That's my thinking, at least.
0: Yeah, it's like literate programming, and, and you occasionally get the sense that the person who wrote it maybe is illiterate.
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Probably with me, yeah.
0: Do we have a good foundation for talking about LightFS?
1: I mean, a lot of the same concepts apply. I mean, there's, there's some more complexity in there, but sure.
0: All right, from Lightstream to LightFS, how do we go from just backups to streaming replication?
1: The two things that people requested the most with Lightstream was that they wanted to be able to failover to another node, and they wanted to have it so they could do read replication, essentially. So they had nodes in different areas, then they could make a change in one in the, in the primary, and those changes just get pushed out immediately everywhere else. We needed a lot more control than we have in Lightstream. So Lightstream runs as a separate process, um, but that means it could miss writes. You know, if you're if you turn off Lightstream, that's no good, because then you lose state and lose where you're at and everything. So essentially what LightFS does is that it injects itself at the file system layer as a fuse file system. And there's certain points in time where like essentially we can see when a transaction starts and finishes from the file system layer. Uh, so we're not trying to like interpret some crazy stuff from SQLite as to what it's doing. There's like, you know, when you acquire a lock at a certain time or release one here or whatever. That's where we kind of get boundaries for the transaction. And then we can read the change pages in between those boundaries, package them up as like a transaction file, essentially. And we can ship those off to all the replicas. And that one actually does even more checksumming and all kinds of crazy stuff than Lightstream does, just to make sure it's all in sync. But essentially, you can make a change on your primary and whatever your your ping latency is to get to your replica. That's essentially how fast it replicates. So it's it's pretty snappy.
0: So instead of with Lightstream, you are sort of interjecting yourself in the sense that you have an additional lock in the database file, and then you're working off of the artifacts that SQLite emits in the form of the write-ahead log. Here, instead, you are interjecting yourself between SQLite and the file system. And you happen to know that file locking is an important semaphore in how SQLite does these things, and so it's a, it's a cue to you that something interesting has happened, and then along the way, you sit and can sniff all of the actual reads and writes that it does, and when you get that next unlock, that's your cue that you should do something with those bytes that you've accumulated. Do you send the bytes off before you... What, what's the ordering? How do, you, how do you interleave these things so you make sure that you don't lose data?
1: Oh yeah it goes into a staging area as well like similar to, to Lightstream. so we're not blocking too much on the actual write itself if you blocked to do the replication then it would take forever it'd be so slow <laughs> there is definitely some delay in, in shipping it back you know between a, a primary and a, a replica and we actually have some interesting stuff in there as well for building that was one part i didn't really anticipate being so hard you'll get these tiny little delays between the the primary and the replica You don't want your application to have to think too hard about if it's the primary or replica or like what the delay is or what the current replication position is and all that stuff. And for a while, that was kind of an issue. like, you know, we were kind of hooking in, giving that information to the application, but it was just too much to wrap your head around. So we actually ended up making an HTTP proxy that'll run above the application. So it's like the proxy and then the app, and then we inject in the file system as well. So we kind of like sandwich in between the application. So we can actually hold requests that come in until the replication is caught up, and then we can send it to the application.
0: Sorry, my, my my brain is trying to wrap around what this HTTP proxy is doing because you've you've got like multiple concurrent inbound requests, and you're having to correlate these arbitrary inbound HTTP requests to a set of <laughs> transactions that you're <laughs> snooping on the on the on the database. Um, what? How do you how do you correlate them? How do you know which HTTP request is okay to let back out again?
1: Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, we implement um, read-your-on-writes. That's kind of the level of consistency that's it's doing. So essentially, when it hits the primary, it'll actually get tagged with a, uh, a replication position, and then when it goes back and hits a replica, it could be any replica. Uh, it'll try to wait for that replica to catch up, and usually it does almost instantly. But uh, we want to make sure we don't hit it just before that comes in. It's not as complicated as it as it sounds. Like it actually ended up being like a couple hours worth of work, <laughs> and it was like oh. We got this thing fixed it's great
0: this is fabulous um i think we should probably leave it there because my brain is approaching full before we go this is your moment for uh shameless promotion is there anything anybody that you want to call
1: out actually there's a guy his name's tony spetz or i'm gonna mess up his last name i like i know usernames he's (laughs) hi-fi on github but he's been doing a great job like helping to maintain some flight stream because i haven't done as great of a job recently he's been Probably not a lot on that. So definitely want to throw a a shout out to him and just anybody that, you know, comes along and gives us some feedback and bug reports and stuff like that. And I always appreciate people testing stuff that we've written. So shout out to y'all.
0: Awesome, Thank you so much, Ben. This has been super fun and I will see you uh, back on the internet.
1: Well, sounds good. Thanks for having me.